Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Morning, friends. My name's Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's uh, good to be with you today. Uh, you know, earlier this year, I had the opportunity to spend some time in Italy, and I took with me one of my sons, who's an oil painter, and we spent a lot of hours in a lot of museums looking at amazing sculptures and paintings. And one painting in particular that I remember seeing that I've done some more research on since then was this Adoration of the Magi by da Vinci. I think I've had us put this up here. And this uh, this is a very famous painting for a number of reasons. Partly is that the Adoration of the Magi, when the wise men come and bow down to the Christ child, this is obviously a very important and repeated theme that comes right from the Christmas stories, and it's something you see in a lot of sacred art. But this particular one is so famous because not only is it by da Vinci, which makes it famous, but also because it's unfinished. It's unfinished. I don't know if you could see that a little bit. You can see some of it's painted in, and a lot of it is not. And what happened was da Vinci was commissioned to paint this in 1481 by a, a group of Augustinian monks, and he set out on this work, which is it's basically life-size, hard to appreciate. It's a very large painting, and it's got tons of detail in it. I don't know if you can see some of it. Um, it's kind of like a High Renaissance, where's Waldo? I mean, there's like all these, all these things going on in the painting, little scenes. There's over 100 characters in it. And so maybe that was why, we don't know for sure why, but it's, it's, a, very one, but it's a very complicated painting, but he never finished it. And he was well known, actually, as kind of a brilliant slacker who started a lot of things and never finished them. And in fact, creative peoples often don't finish things. Novels, essays, sculptures, songs, paintings, for any number of reasons. They might lose interest, they might uh, lose funding, some, they might get sick or die, they, something might happen that changes this, the idea wasn't working out. Many of you have ever tried to create something that often is the case. With this painting, we don't know why he stopped, but we do know that the next year he finished another painting, he got another commission by the Duke of Milan, and you all know that painting, it's The Last Supper. So. We, we don't know what happened to this painting, but it is intriguing. This painting is very intriguing because of a couple of reasons. One is this painting really shows us how an artist, a great artist works and how a painting is done. And the term for it is called underdrawing, underdrawing. One of the things I've learned from my own son as he's developed and developing as a painter, he's at, at an art school now, is that a great oil painting actually consists of a lot of layers. And an oil painting actually starts, I didn't know this until recently, as a drawing typically, a charcoal drawing that kind of sets out the composition. And what this painting shows us is this is actually what a great artist would do. And again, it has a name, it's called under sketching or under drawing. And then over a period of time, layers and layers of color are added to build up this painting. But an unfinished work like this then really helps us kind of see that happening. But there's another thing that's very interesting about this painting and that, you know, we don't know why da Vinci didn't finish it, but we do know that he and his contemporary Michelangelo and others 
didn't finish a bunch of things, sculptures and paintings. And because they were so famous and because they're so intriguing, they actually spawned a whole style of art that uses the Italian phrase non finito, which means not finished. And you see down to this day, there's a lot of art that is intentionally not finished. And when you don't, when you, when you've not finish an art piece, it, it's kind of intriguing because you can't help but imagine what it might have become and where it was going. Now, hold those thoughts for a moment because I'm going to come back in a moment and explain why that matters, but let me orient us to what we're doing in these four weeks. As Sam and the other leaders up here said, we have now entered the season, the four-week season that the church calls Advent. And Advent refers to the coming of Jesus into the world, the event that obviously we're celebrating at Christmas. And so during the four Sundays that precede Christmas, the church has historically focused our intention on this sense of anticipation that what's going to happen at Christmas really matters. Now, the Bible is a big book with a lot of things going on, a lot of stories. It's actually kind of complicated and it's hard to keep track of everything and there's all these wonderful stories happening. But the Bible has a unity to it and the unity is that it's all pointing towards a goal. And that goal we understand as Christians is the coming of Jesus into the world, the thing we celebrate again at Christmas. And this year, for our Advent series, we usually, you know, we craft together a, a series of sermons that, that help us think about this. We're calling it sketches of salvation because we're looking at four Old Testament characters, four real people from the Old Testament that are part of this pre-story to Jesus, that they anticipate, they picture for us what's going to finally happen and what we celebrate at Christmas. And maybe now you can begin to see why I started by talking about da Vinci's adoration of the Magi. Because these four people we're going to look at Abraham this week, and then Rahab and Ruth and David. In fact, all the people and ideas of institutions of the Old Testament are really non-finito, unfinished underdrawings of the final image of God in Jesus. All that was happening before are these unfinished sketches that really point to and lead us to Jesus. And just like in da Vinci's adoration, these people are underdrawings that, that contribute to and actually prepare the canvas of the world for the final image of God and Jesus. So as Christians, we don't ignore the Old Testament. We don't get rid of it. We actually read these stories. It's appropriate to read them as we prepare for Christmas because we are seeking to understand ourselves from them as well as how they lead us and help us understand who Jesus is. So this is what we're going to be doing together over these four weeks. We're excited about it. These four Sundays of Advent, again, Abraham, Rahab, Ruth, and David. And today we're going to look at one of the greatest and most important people really in all of human history, as I'll explain here in biblical history, Abraham. And the question I want you to have in mind as we look at Abraham's life briefly is how understanding his sketch might help us understand what we are here to celebrate at Christmas. So who is Abraham? Well, Abraham, whose his name originally was Abram, which means the father is exalted. God himself changed his name to Abraham, the father of many nations. He's a guy who lived 
for we could tell in the 19th to 20th centuries BC, so from around somewhere in 1800 to 2000 BC. And the reason he's so important is because all three of the big monotheistic religions of the world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all look back to Abraham as their progenitor, as their most important uh, or, you know, patriarch and, and origin of their story. For the rest of the Bible, for Jewish people and Christian people, Abraham's line through Isaac is what's crucial. For all Muslims in the world, Abraham's line through Ishmael is what's important. And if you open the Bible, which I'm going to have you do here in a second, and start reading from the beginning, you'll see the first 11 chapters of Genesis are this, first you have this creation account, and then you just have this really sad and tragic spiraling down into disastrous humans um, are engaged in murder and deceit and all, all these horrible things happen. And it kind of culminates in the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, where God finally just scatters all the peoples of the world. But then... The story restarts in Genesis 12 with this man, Abraham. And the whole rest of the book of Genesis through chapter 50 and really the entirety of Jewish and Christian history all comes down to what happens in Genesis 12. But it's not just genealogical descent that's important. From Genesis 12 on, we learn a lot about who God is. We learn that there's one God who rules over all, and that this one God is actually personal, that he's willing to have a relationship and to call people and have a personal relationship with them. And we also learn that despite our foolishness and sinfulness and ignorance and arrogance and rebellion, that God truly loves his creatures and he's working out a way for us who are made in his image to be redeemed, to be restored to that place of relationship with him that was lost at the fall to a place of thriving and joy and wholeness. The, the biblical language for that is, is blessed. And we also learn that God then chose Abraham. He chose one man and his family to be the, the agent or the source of this blessing, this thriving, this shalom to go to all the world. And so Abraham's really, really important right there at the beginning of the story. And if you trace him through the whole Bible, you'll see that he appears all throughout the Old Testament. He keeps being referred back to. And in the New Testament as well, he's referred to over 25 times. John the Baptist talks about him. Jesus talks about him. Peter, Stephen, Paul, they all talk about the importance of Abraham. So in light of all that, and that God chose Abraham specifically to be the way in which he's going to restore Eden and actually bring a new creation finally, you'd expect that what we're going to find in this man and in this family is this amazing family where everybody's beautiful and wealthy and successful and kind and generous. Just this family we might imagine when you see him, you're like, oh, that's like a, another level of humanity beyond me. That's what you'd expect when you read Genesis 12 and beyond. But instead, in reality, what you see in Genesis 12 and all the way down to the story of Jesus is basically a, a story of a huge multi-generational dumpster fire. <laughs> Conflicts, deception, jealousy, sexual morality, murder, 
if they would have had Google in the ancient world and you typed in dysfunctional family, Abraham would have been the, the first one to pop up. But there's something really important for us here in Abraham's story. And so I want to just take a few moments and just kind of run through it. If, if, I would invite you to, if you have a Bible, um, I actually wasn't able to put these things on the screen, but it's great to open a Bible anyways. So if you have a Bible, um, turn to Genesis chapter 12. There are some pew Bibles. It's on page nine if you want to grab that, or you can pull it up on your phone as well. So Genesis, starting in Genesis chapter 12, and I'm just going to do a quick run through what happens in Abraham's story. So Genesis chapter 12, what we see starting in the first few verses of Genesis 12, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great, which is happening here in Louisville, Kentucky. We're still talking about him so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Basically what happens in these, in these first verses, this first little story of Abraham, is that God calls him from his settled place near the Euphrates River, modern day Iraq, on a long journey with all his family and I mean, his kin and his sheep and cattle. And they take this long journey, about 1800 miles, to finally end up in what we would know today as Palestine or Israel. And this is a great moment of faith. This is what the New Testament constantly looks back to and talks about Abraham trusting God to kind of go out and follow his calling, even though he didn't know what the future was going to hold. But then if you look at chapter 12, verse 10 to 20, you see some many years have gone by and there's a great famine. And so he takes his whole family including his wife, to Egypt, which is another long journey away to try to survive, which is going to be a theme throughout the Bible, you'll see. And he's so scared because his wife is so beautiful that when they get there, that they're going to kill him to take his wife, that he convinces her to say that she's his sister. <laughs> Man, if you aren't aware that that's not a good idea, that's a huge fail. Is it not a moment of great faith? He doesn't say, God, I trust that you'll provide it for us. He, he engages in an act of deception to protect his own skin. Then look at Genesis 13. As his family, is, and not his own children, but his kinsmen and his crops, I mean, his, and his uh, cattle and sheep are growing, the great blessings are happening. His nephew Lot is with them, and they realize they have too much to, to, you know, there's not enough grass for all the, all the sheep. And so they decide you need to split up. And so Abraham, who's the older of them and the one with all the power and control, he says to his nephew Lot, you look over the whole land that we're in and I'll let you choose first and you take whatever land you think is best and I'll take the leftovers. I love this story. I mean, it reminds me of when our kids were little and, you know, we had six kids and not a lot of money. And so if there was a candy bar or something, the rule was whoever split it, the other person got to choose first, right? If you don't know that, it's a little pro tip, parenting tip there. Whoever gets to cut the candy bar to split it, the other person gets to choose first because that prevents uh, deception. Well, in this case, basically what happens is Abraham looks around and he, and Lot does as well, and he sees that part of the land is really good for, for sheep and part of it is not so great. And, and he says to Lot, you choose first, even though he's the one in power. And so Lot does, and he does choose the more verdant place. And then God shows up and says to Abraham, which is a great moment of faith, says to Abraham, 
basically because you trusted me, I will actually end up giving you all this land. So that's the Genesis 13 story. Genesis 14 to 15, if you're just glancing there, Lot gets himself into trouble and there's all these kings that are fighting with each other and, finally, and Lot himself gets captured and his family. So Abraham prays to God and he goes out and takes his own men and he rescues Lot from these kings of the earth. And on his way back, that Melchizedek, who's going to appear later in the New Testament in this mysterious way, comes out and blesses him and, and honors him for this. And again, in a great moment of faith, the king that, was, that uh, Abraham was involved in fighting for and against the others to rescue Lot, basically says to him, you know, take whatever you want. You've rescued us. And he says, I'm not going to take anything that's not mine. I just want Lot and his family. Again, a great moment of faith on Abraham's part. And then if you look at Genesis 16, you see that Abraham and Sarah have been promised by God now that God is going to make of their descendants a great nation, but they're old and she's barren. They can't have any children. So after waiting a long time, Sarah comes up with this plan and Abraham goes along with it. They decide that Abraham's going to have relations with his maid, Hagar, or Sarah's maid, and it works. And they have a son, Ishmael, which ends up, of course, being a huge source of conflict, another huge fail. Then in chapters 18 and 19, you see the lot gets himself in trouble again. Abe rescues him, good old Uncle Abe. Then in Genesis 20, again, Abraham is flourishing. And once again, when he's in contact with the king Abimelech, he passes Sarah off as his sister again to save his own skin. Another huge fail. But then God blesses them and she gives birth to a son, Isaac. And if you skip ahead to chapter 22, a very famous and shocking story from the whole Bible where God tests Abraham in this ultimate way. After like this, this whole story has been going on for like 30, 35 years now. And he finally has the son that he's longed for. And Abraham and God tests him to say, I want you to sacrifice your son. And after all this journey, he's willing to do that, trusting that God can somehow provide for him and his family in some other way. But in the last moment, if you know the story from Genesis 22, God provides a ram and, and he's rescued. Again, a great moment of faith. Do you see a pattern? Do you see the pattern? Abraham is a man who is favored by God. In fact, all throughout the Bible, again, he's commended as the model of faith, of faith in God and his life was marked by these great moments of faith as well as moments of great failure. I think of these chapters as, as an example of fumbling faith. It's like Abraham is this great NFL player who rushes for tons of yards, scores game-winning touchdowns every game, but he also regularly fumbles the ball. And it's painful to watch, just like it's painful to watch that high-def, slow-motion fumble on television. So contrary to what we might expect, we see in Abraham's life that godliness 
and faith look actually like inconsistency and failure and fumbling. And it's true actually of all of Abraham's descendants. So what do we do with this? Well, I wanna draw two points from this to help us think about this as we are in this season of Advent. The first is this, that like Abraham, our lives are also marked by fumbling faith. Even as Christians, like Abraham, our lives are marked by fumbling faith. Just like Abraham, our lives are also an imperfect combination of faith, but a mixture of joys and doubts and hope, cynicism, discouragement, wisdom, sinning, apathy, and faith. Maybe when I say that, you can immediately think of some big failure in your life that continues to haunt you, maybe with consequences or shame. But you're here. There's still something in you that knows that there's life to be found in God. Maybe it's not something big. Maybe you're just struggling with doubting God's goodness. Maybe difficulties and circumstances and pains and disappointments in your life make you really doubt God's goodness or is this stuff even all real? But you're here. Maybe like Abraham did, maybe you have or you are taking situations into your own hands, trying to control situations because things are not working out as you think they should or as you want. Maybe you only have to think back to Thursday, to Thanksgiving gathering. Maybe, like me, we have a big crowd and we like to curate and craft an experience for everyone in the Pennington household. And so when we have guests, which we do a lot, we have name placards and I and Mandy sit down and we work out where everybody's going to sit. It's a big, a big thing and we plan it all out. And then now that our kids are getting older, it turns out they all have opinions about where they're going to sit as well. And the last several holidays, I've handwritten all the placards and I've put them in the right place. I've got a seating chart. And then sure enough, I know, I won't name them, but some kid comes in and says, I don't want to sit by them. Oh, I want to sit by them. And then they move in the right. I'm getting triggered again. And this, and maybe this is what happens to you. Maybe you had a kid home, come home from college and despite your best desires, to have a different relationship with them. Maybe you just fell back into old patterns. Maybe Thanksgiving and all the stress of that really highlighted some tensions with your spouse or maybe regrets because you're alone. Whatever your life looks like, it's always a combination of faith and hope as well as disappointments and failures and regrets and trying to control things. That's our plight. It's okay. It was okay with Abraham. It was okay with us. God knows us and he loves us. This is what it means to be broken humans living in a broken world that's full of truth, goodness, and beauty, as well as darkness and disappointment and regret. And what's so beautiful 
is that the Bible is so honest and real. Because if this is what Abraham's life looked like, the great patriarch of the faith, we shouldn't be surprised that this is what our lives look like as well. And hear me clearly in this. You see, great faith doesn't mean we don't fail or doubt. Great faith means we keep returning to God. Great faith doesn't mean we don't fail or doubt. It means we keep returning to God. And as you go back to our opening ideas, if you never thought of yourself as an unfinished work of art, I'd like to kind of give you that, I'd like to give you that biblical way of thinking that God is at work through the Holy Spirit to restore and complete God's image in you. And like an unfinished painting or sculpture, there's actually something compelling and beautiful about the potential of what we are becoming. In fact, as kind of a side note, it's not a bad way to think about the people in your life, especially when they might be annoying or frustrating, to think of them as an unfinished work that God is recrafting. You see, we are paintings. We are layers laid upon top of another as we develop and grow over time, being made into the perfect image of the God-man, Jesus. And the midst of this drawing and layering process, the pencil sketch of our lives is valuable to God. He's at work shaping you and filling you up as a human. As I was taking a deep dive into this whole world of underdrawing and undersketching this week, I, I ran across just a little reference to a very technical term that's used in oil painting called uh, pentimenti. And pentimenti are the, it's the plural form, it's the Italian word that basically refers to changes that are made from the original pencil drawing to the final image. What you see a lot of times in paintings, we can actually see it with infrared. It's very cool now. You can see that maybe the character was like this at one point, and then by the time the final painting came, they were like this or something, whatever it was. I guess you don't see that in a lot of Italian Renaissance painting, but maybe. Um, there's still time. But the point is, pentimenti is from the Italian word that means to repent, to change one's mind. I just think what a beautiful image to think of that wherever you are and whatever pencil sketch of your life up to this point with all its mistakes and regrets that God is happy to and is able to repaint your life into his own image. Such an encouraging reminder. So that's the first thing, just to... And I want to draw out this, that Abraham's faith is just like ours, or ours is like Abraham's. And the second thing I want to point out from this, all these ideas, is that Advent or Christmas is important because Jesus himself completes what the, the picture that Abraham began. And that Jesus himself completes the picture that Abraham began. Let me explain what I mean. When we think of faith in the New Testament, we primarily think of putting our faith in, trusting in Jesus. And in that, Abraham is our model of trusting ourselves to God in the midst of scary and difficult and, and impossible situations. That is a beautiful thing. And so in that sense, it's easy to see why the New Testament talks about Abraham's faith 
as what it means to be a Christian, that we have the faith of Abraham. He's the model of faith, or at least kind of. He's the model of what our lives of faith look like, as I was just talking about, mixed, inconsistent moments of of greatness and moments of failing. But Advent and Christmas and the incarnation are important because Jesus is completely faithful in the ways that Abraham and you and I are not. In other words, you and I think about the importance of putting our faith in Jesus, and that's good, and definitely that we are the ones putting our faith in. But if you considered how often the New Testament talks about Jesus's own faith in God, Jesus's own faithfulness as a model for us. That is, faith in the New Testament isn't just about you and I putting our faith in him, but is also describing how Jesus himself is faithful to God, and that provides the final image of what faith looks like, completing the picture that has begun with Abraham and us, but is very incomplete. When you read the Gospels, you'll see that there's a, as we're going through Luke, we'll continue to see this, there's a regular theme of Jesus being the obedient son. He's faithful to God. Jesus himself repeatedly says that he came into the world to do the will of the Father. That's his goal. That's his food. That's his purpose. And I think the ultimate picture of faith is at the end of Jesus' life in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he expresses his desires. He wants to be free from the pain that he's in. But he himself prays the ultimate prayer of faith, not my will, but your will be done. And Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus was obedient and faithful even to the point of death. So you see, Jesus' faithfulness and faith is like Abraham's in that he's trusting himself to the Father. But unlike Abraham's faith, Jesus does not fumble and fall even at the point of death. Now, why does that matter? That matters because the result of Jesus' own faithfulness as a real human is that he forges a new way of having a relationship with God, a new covenant that does not depend on us and is completely secure and complete. As the letter of the Hebrew says, Jesus is the pioneer, he's the perfecter of faith. Because there's no longer any need for a renewal of the covenant, when we fail, there's no need for a sacrificial system of animals or grain sacrifices because Christ's complete and perfect faithfulness means that there's a new way to relate to God that is based not on our faith exclusively, but on first and foremost on his faithfulness. And we get to be a part of that by what the Bible talks about as our union with Christ. We're grafted into him. But what I want you to understand is that that's not just some abstract theological idea. It actually means that the pencil sketches of our lives become part of the full image of God in Jesus. They're not separate. He actually incorporates our lives into what God is doing in the world. And that's good news. That is good news. And that's why at Christmas we are celebrating that this is more than just a great time of year with nostalgia and memories and presents. That's all great. I'm all for that. But it's actually celebrating that God became a human 
so that we might be incorporated into the story of God himself and his redemption of the world. And so again, my points were that like Abraham, our lives are marked by fumbling faith and that Christmas is important because Jesus again completes that picture of faith that even Abraham could not do. And so to wrap this up, I just want to you know, give you an image that's very familiar to you, but help you think about it in light of all that we've said. So our, our family tradition for a very, very long time is that the day after Thanksgiving, we set up the tree, not before, we can talk about that afterwards if you want, and we set up the tree and the decorations, we order Chinese food, and we watch a Christmas movie to kind of kick off the season. For years and years, it was Elf, one of our favorites. But this weekend, we did that, and we got to watch a new Christmas movie, also with Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds. Some of you may have seen it. It's on Apple TV, called Spirited. And we really liked it, I, and I definitely recommend it. It's a musical, which I love, but even my wife, who doesn't like musicals, liked it. And I won't spoil it for you, um, because I want you to watch it. But I can just say that you learn in the very opening scene that this movie, Spirited, is related to the classic Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And I think most of us know that story. I was thinking about that because we had just watched this other one. And what you know, what happens in that story is the three ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future come to Ebenezer Scrooge. They take him on a journey where he experiences a realization of himself. He starts to see himself more clearly. And cutting through the crusty grouchiness he begins to see wounds and regrets and losses that he hasn't really dealt with and how they have really shaped him and now they've robbed him of, of any meaningful life. And you know, that journey of coming to see ourselves, which usually happens through just mistakes and failures as well as counseling and therapy, which is helpful, it's always painful. But even though it's a painful journey, it's good as long as there is the opportunity and the ability to change, to live differently. This is why Scrooge is so happy. He wakes up and asks, what day is it? Is it Christmas? And he hasn't missed Christmas. He can still do good. But if change were not possible, then this kind of self-revelation is nothing other than overwhelming and crushing. Well, the good news is, as that we head into Advent and the Christmas season, that we're leaning into the great hope that Jesus is exactly what we need. And I, I invite you during this Advent season to be honest, just like the Bible is, to be honest about your failures, your fumbling, your faith, and, and to renew your hope in the one who has come to take up your life to complete your story, to make the non-finito, the unfinished and broken parts of your life and make them into something beautiful. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.